The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, April 18th, the Frank edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm the editorial director of Slate Podcast, and I'm the father of Eliza, who's eight years old, and Leo, who is four and three quarters. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 17, Teddy, who is 16, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 18. And I'm Carvo Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 13, and Ezra, who is 16. Today on our show, we have a question about passing on your own insecurities to your kids and another about keeping birthday pictures off of social media. Plus, as always, we'll have triumphs and fails. We'll make recommendations. And on Slate Plus, we've got some follow-up on Rebecca's racist summer. Stay tuned. Let's start with triumphs and fails. Rebecca, do you want to go first? Yeah. There's something that I just want to talk about. And I think that this is a fail, you know, not necessarily of mine, but just sort of like um, kind of just like of a system and also just our acceptance of it. So I guess I can say it's it's my failure. Um, so Teddy and I were talking this week. We've had a lot of deep talks lately. And one of the things that we were talking about is how, you know, he really struggles with. And by the way, he did give me permission to talk about this, this this part of it. He, he really struggles with just sort of feeling like people see him as being like below average because, you know, his grades are not great. And because he has this high achieving mm. brother and, you know, he's just he sort of see he sees himself that way. But more so, he thinks that every single person he meets sees him that way because most people that he knows um, you know, are people that he knows through school. And he kind of feels like everybody sort of just has this picture in his mind of him. And we're talking about this. And, and we're talking about, of course, all the ways in which he's like decidedly not below average. Like he's an exceptionally talented mm. musician. He's exceptionally empathetic. He's exceptionally funny. He's probably the funniest person in our family. You know, as an example, the other day, Henry was looking for this like T-shirt that he loves that's like black and white stripes. And Teddy was like, oh, you mean your felon T-shirt? The one that makes you look like an incarcerated person? I I could see why you'd want to wear that today, Henry. He just has a very, like, sharp, like, in the moment, um, like, very, like, quick-witted and chill sense of humor. I just, I adore him so much. And he's so, in many ways, like, the most wonderful person in our family and, like, one of the best people I know. But, like, the only assessments we get of kids that play into their self-worth as far as whether they're average or above average or below average is report cards. And somehow Mm. along the way, when they're in school and they're little, the report cards contain assessments of things like personality and character and sense of humor and ability to get along well with others. And then when you get to high school, it's just like the grades Mm. and like the competencies, right? And I just, you know, somehow along the way, uh, we stop thinking that it's important for adults and people who are help shaping our kids to also give us feedback and give the kids feedback about sort of the quality of their character and the ways that they're exceptional aside from like their C in math or whatever. And that just feels really bad to me. And we had this conversation. I, I just walked away from it feeling like part of it is me not you know, like just looking at the report card and and being because it is our only measure in the moment, like, dude, you Mm. could do better than a 70 in math. And the other part of it is a system in which we somehow have decided in, in education that talking about how well kids get along with their peers or inspire others or help each other out, like we stop thinking that matters and we stop writing about it and talking about them that way. So that was the thing that I wanted to bring up today. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that. Mm. 
Yes, I have many thoughts about that. I mean, that is the reality, and that actually ties into my fail, which I guess I'll probably go into. Like, Ooh. I mean, you're speaking my situation with Ezra. It's like it is really intense, and I and I think one of the things that's kind of remarkable about it is how I keep having to struggle with it every day. And I thought that I was going to maybe like come to some re- like not unlike him with the stuff that he struggles with. I thought that I could just sort of come to some revelation about how to you know, sort of not overly value the these uh, educational metrics and value other metrics, like what kind of person is he and, you know, and stuff like that. And, like, I thought I would, like, figure that out around sixth or seventh grade and then I'd be good to go for the rest of his, the time he's under sort of our roof. But, like, that's not what's happening. What's happening is I, 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 I keep organizing my point of view on him around his ability to execute certain things that he struggles with executing. And in that, and then I undervalue just by nature, his ability, like the the way he succeeds in other things. And what I think is actually really important about this is that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy over time. And I think this is really important for younger parents of younger kids to hear. If you have a kid that's not doing well in school, the the problem with that is that it creates a tremendous amount of fear in you as a parent. Like it's in most all almost all struggles with parenting come from fear. Fear is the underlying sort of like emotional thing for everything. And so there's a fear that if they don't learn these habits and these work habits and these goals and how to get along in society and how to do what they're supposed to do, then they won't be able to I don't know, but something they won't be able to do it. To feed themselves or put a roof over their head or like get out of your house or just they won't get a job and they'll never you know, like it's just it's fear. It's we're afraid. And that's perfectly valid and a normal thing to do. But what happens is if we continue to organize our view of them in a way, at least to their eyes, around these metrics that they're not good at, then they just lose this light, kind of goes out a little bit. Mm-hmm. It extinguishes a little bit. Like I, and it's like sad, but I think that I've seen that happen with kids. And they stop feeling like they have a lot to offer. So then the other things that they used to maybe sort of sparkle and be good at, they start to shy away from those because they're like, Ugh, I don't really... I'm kind of a loser. I just, I kind of just want this to be over with. I kind of suck at this. And that is what I'm like afraid that I see on some level happening with Ezra, to be 100% honest with you. I don't think it's 100% happened, but I can see how he is in this system where, for whatever reason, and I don't understand the reasons for it, he's really smart. Like he's wild smart. And like just his grasp of stuff is just so vast. But when you put him in a classroom, he doesn't do the stuff that people give you grades for. He just doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't know right. how to like do these. He can't. And so he won't. And he and won't. So but he actually th- can't. Yeah. I don't. I, I that. And that's right. That's the thing. It's like, well, surely you can, because I'm like, you just got to do it. That's what I had to do. I just had to do it. And everyone, you just got to do it. And like, I don't. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. That obviously doesn't work. And so. And it's like, it's the school stuff. It's not forgetting stuff. It's like showing up to things on time. It's like I go to pick them up to take them to school and he's not, shoes are not on. And I'm like, why aren't your shoes on? Like, I don't understand what happened here. You have a clock. You know what time is. You know that we're leaving at 8. Why is it 8.03 and you, you like don't have your pants? Like, what is happening? You know, and it's like... And so it's it's inconceivable to me that he can't do it, but it, it would it would appear by evidence that he can't do it. And what happens for him is that as he continues to like just feel like someone whose main life, whose main identity is defined by not doing something, 
then he feels like someone who can't do stuff. And that just builds up. And then he only wants to do things that he knows he can do. And he doesn't want to try anything else. And that really sucks. That's my fail, actually. That's, I mean, I was going to talk about that because things were going fine for a while. And we, so he and I sort of got into it this weekend about some, like, stuff. And I just, and it was fine. It wasn't tremendous. No one lost their temper. No one, like, freaked out. But I just went away from that reaction, from that interaction going, why am I making the same mistake that I've made since fifth grade? Why am I doing that? There's, it is wild how I can make this, how I can be like, okay, I recognize that I have to like sort of like stop with this deficit-based point of view and stop getting into it with him and stop taking the bait. Of course, he has ridiculous ideas. He's 16. When you're 16, you have ridiculous ideas. That's just part of it. Why am I taking it personally? But then in the interaction, I just, I took the bait more than I wanted to. And the main problem is that it leaves him with this feeling that he's not acceptable and he's not doing stuff right. And that really stresses me out that I'm doing that to him. And I don't quite know how to stop it. I just keep trying and hoping. And I just keep trying anew every day. And that's that's all I have for it. But this is like a serious thing. I mean, it must be a feeling in you, right, that that he's missing some kind of superego, some kind of voice that you have in your own head that's the thing that makes you do the stuff that you don't particularly want to do mm-hmm. at, a, at any given moment. Like, I remember mm-hmm. not being great at that stuff, and then at some point, you know, when my brain was sufficiently mature that I could make myself, like, do my homework by, like, okay, you don't want to do your homework, but you got to fucking do your homework now. Okay, now you've done your homework. And and I see Eliza, who is much younger than than your kids, but who um, you know has a hard time remembering her whatever that she's supposed to remember, like whatever low level homework that they're giving her in second grade. She just doesn't naturally have the set of stuff that's going to make her do it. And so I feel myself trying to be like, okay. I have to say out loud the voice that I have in my head that gets me to do that stuff because she doesn't have that voice. So I have to like supplement that part of her brain that has not developed yet. But it turns out that like supplementing it externally isn't, doesn't actually work. Like that's not an effective substitute. And then where are you? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing I have the hardest time with, and this is the thing that Joe and I talk about a lot because I feel like this is an area where she's like, I think this is an area where she's farther along the path that I am. And I, I like looked at her and I'm like, show me, teach me your ways. The thing where I really struggle is like, I have a hard time having faith that it's all going to work out without my constant intervention. But my constant intervention is one of the reasons it's not working out. But I, I can't tell which of the interventions, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like helping him. Like, would it be worse if I, like, didn't kind of, like, do the level of management I did? And which of my interventions is just making it worse for him? Right. I you, cannot tell the difference. You have to let him fail and so that he can crazy. succeed for himself. But then you also sort of don't really want to let him fail that badly because then he's really failing. Yeah, I don't really yeah. want to let him fail it. <laughs> and, like, and there is, like, you sort of want to fight for your kids. Like, you want it. You know what I mean? You yeah. want it, You don't want to just be like, well, I hope it all works out. You want to be like, no, God damn it, this is how, you know, I'm going to make sh- My job is to make sure that you have this capacity to do these things that you need to do in order to survive and have a productive life. And and sometimes, sometimes you have to do that over resistance from the kid. Obviously, so much of parenting is making your kids do things that they need to do over their resistance. I mean, I, I, you know, it's like you wear a coat. I don't want to wear a coat. Put in a seatbelt. I don't want to put in a seatbelt. Get in the car seat. Like so much of parenting is that. The hard part is knowing what of what is that and what is just you being overbearing. Honestly, I think my conclusion is that you never quite know, but you have to ask that question every day. 
and be willing to have new answers every day based on the development of the kid. Okay. Well, um, that was some very good fails, guys. I feel a, a little bad <laughs> because I just have like a, 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 a dumb, cute story about me and my four-year-old, and it doesn't we, have a we whole— We need that now. Sure. Okay. Right. I, I, Palette just, cleanser. Okay. I just need, I just need to yeah. set expectations properly, right? This is more like your traditional like anecdote that we do here sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, and, and Plus, it's a triumph, which is going to be like super annoying after that. So um, everyone can just be annoyed at me, I guess, is where we're going to come out of this. Uh, in, in, in any case, the backstory here is uh, we have to move. We we have been renting an apartment from some friends, and they are now coming back to New York, and so we have to now move out of the apartment that we've been renting, which seems a bit much, frankly. But it is their apartment, and they want to live in it, and and so we've been looking for other other places. Uh, and one of the, you know, when one of the good things about moving is we can get a place that has two bedrooms for the kids because they've been sharing a bedroom and Eliza's eight and she's like quite, she's been very patient, but quite reasonably, she's like, I don't want to share a bedroom with my little brother anymore. Uh, so instead of having one quite large bedroom for them, we're going to have two quite small bedrooms for them. Uh, we found a place by the way, which I, I shouldn't even talk about it on this show cause we haven't signed the lease yet, but, um, wherever we go, we're <laughs> going to have two smaller bedrooms, uh, for, for the separate, for the kids. Um, and we told Eliza that because she's the older child and because she's been so patient about sharing with her brother and everything, she will have the bigger bedroom. And that was fine until then at one point, Leo realizes the implications of her getting the bigger bedroom, which is him getting the smaller bedroom. (laughs) The math there, eventually the math sort of clicks into place. Um, and for a while, it was like you could see whenever the bedrooms would come up, he didn't like he hadn't we hadn't gotten to the real fit about it, but you could tell it was coming. He would just like you would get a look on his face or he would ask about it or whatever. And my triumph is that I figured out how to address it with him, which is to do with recognizing, frankly, that little kids really just aren't good at math, that they have no sense of relative value and stuff like that. So I said to him at dinner the other night, you know what? When we move into our new place, Eliza is going to have the bigger bedroom and you can get any superhero Lego set you want. (laughs) (laughs) And his eyes just light up. Wow. And you can put it in your new room. We can build it together and you can put it there in your new room. And now he's super excited about moving because his room is going to have the superhero Lego set. Uh, so that is my triumph. It's great <laughs> that they have no idea, like the value of like an extra eight square feet in New York City versus the value of a Lego set. It's not <laughs> not even comparable. You know what I mean? But uh, but but it's Man. nice. It's nice to be able to exploit their ignorance in that way. So that is my triumph. <laughs> well, you're also. It's like the ROI on it is so great because you're going to spend probably. I mean, the most you can probably spend is like a hundred bucks or whatever. Oh, we're not going to spend like hundred bucks. Super grand one. He, he can't right, really just, have any Lego. Set that he wants. That was that was bullshit. No, we're going to spend twenty bucks. Okay, you spend twenty bucks, and even if down the road he's like, "This is whatever," like you will have a period of time, like a long period of time, in which he'll be like, "No, this was the deal. It was an agreement that you guys made," and just remind him of the agreement and how excited he was about it. And that's like really good ROI. It really is. Even if he figures it out, like that's his room now. Like, that'll be his room. He's not going to think of, like, well, maybe why is that one my room? Why did my parents get the really big one with the bathroom attached? No, he's not going to think about that. He's, he's in his room.
Now's the time we do the business. Uh, If you're not yet subscribed to Slate's parenting newsletter, not sure what you're waiting for, go to slate.com slash parenting email. You'll find out when there's a new episode of this show, a new care and feeding column, a new ask a teacher, a new My Parents Work Life Balance. Have you read My Parents Work Life Balance on Slate? It's so fun and good. Uh, We talk to different children about how they perceive their parents' lifestyles. The answers will surprise and delight you. Anyway, you can find out about that and so much more, slate.com slash parenting email. As always, if you have a question that you want us to talk about on this very show, Mom and Dad are Fighting Slate's Parenting Podcast, you can leave us a message on our voicemail number 424-255-7833, or you can email us at our email address, which, as you may know, is momanddad at slate.com. We have a Facebook group. I know uh, everything on Facebook is horrible, but that does not apply to the Slate Parenting Facebook group, which is, in fact, rather wonderful. Uh, Lots of parents having really good discussions and uh, sharing tips, triumphs, fails, making recommendations, asking for advice. Uh, It is a cool community. Also, every now and again, someone does something obnoxious and uh, we get to block them and kick them out of the community uh, in accordance with our no assholes policy, which is both fun for me and also makes the group fun and cool for everybody. Uh, Go on Facebook, search for Slate Parenting. On Slate Plus today, we're going to hear the very latest on Rebecca's racist New Hampshire summer camp drama. If you remember that segment from uh, almost a year ago, you are surely salivating at the thought of another installment. If you don't, that's the kind of behind-the-scenes thread that Slate Plus members are up with. Uh, So if you're not yet a member of Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus and join today. You get a bonus segment every week. You get no ads in this or any other Slate podcast. And most importantly, you get the warm feeling of satisfaction that comes from helping your favorite podcasters make your favorite podcast, assuming that we are your favorite podcasters and this is your favorite podcast. Slate.com slash momanddadplus. Try it free for two weeks. What have you got to lose? Okay, onward. All right. Time to take a question from a listener. If you want to ask us a question, you can email us. Our email address is momanddad at slate.com, which is where the author of this question wrote to us. And then we printed out her question and uh, we had it read for us by Shasha Leona. Here it comes. Dear mom and dad are fighting. This week, I had an epic fail that rocked me to my core. I am a 48-year-old married father of an eight-year-old son. As a child, I was abused by my father some physically and a lot emotionally. Additionally, I was bullied in school and left out from the cool kids table. I was also super smart and used the bullying and abuse to fuel me to achieve greatness. And this has served as inspiration to be the dad that I never had. This past week, however, my insecurities took over and spilled over onto my son. Our church has a children's program that uses kids performing with wooden dowels choreographed to music to tell a story. My son has participated in the program since its inception a year ago and greatly enjoys it. The children's director at the church has a good heart, but often fails to plan or organize for items in advance. Approximately three weeks prior to Easter, she realized she needed to do something for the program. The normal program would have approximately 30 kids with maybe two to five central storytelling elements, 
However, with the lack of planning this year, the disorganized director decided to do a program with her daughter and four children from the popular families. Upon hearing this, I became flooded with feelings of exclusion. I projected my discontent while discussing it with my wife, while my son was around. Now he has feelings of exclusion from something he loves doing, and my projection of the dislike for the popular kids. When his genuine emotional injury came to the surface, I realized that it was my framing of the event that framed his view of the event, and I became devastated. My central question is, how do I prevent the insecurity and exclusion feelings of my past from influencing how my son frames the world? Thank you. This is one of those things where you can't fix your parenting without fixing yourself. Like, I, I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think there's a shortcut for you because you, like, the advantage you have is you see really clearly what's going on. It's clear from your letter that, like, you can understand how this, like, shitty feelings from your past are just still alive in you and get set off by these shitty events in the present. And then you respond to them. And then, like, your son feels those feelings coming from you and takes them on in, in whatever way. And like, that's all very normal and natural. And in some way that, you know, that happens to all of us. But um, in this case, you're seeing it having a, an effect that you really don't want it to have. And that is going to motivate you to change yourself and, and the way that you react to those feelings and those memories. And that's the only thing you can do, I think. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done therapy, but this is a thing that being in therapy is really good for, is talking about things that happened to you in the past that you maybe haven't talked about out loud in a long time or gone into deeply in a long time because they're painful and they suck. Uh, but it can help to do that in order to know, well, these feelings are about that thing that happened before and they're not about this thing that's happening right now. Um, if you can swing that, then maybe that would be helpful. Otherwise, try talking to your wife about it when your kid is not around. Try writing in a journal about it. Try thinking about those feelings and, and trying to understand them better and trying then to come to a different relationship as an adult with the stuff that happened to you as a kid. I'm sorry I don't have an easier prescription for you because that's not like super like immediately something that you can take care of this afternoon so that it doesn't happen again tomorrow. Uh, but I, I don't think this is a, a thing where you can you, you can prevent a recurrence of, of that kind of episode through sheer willpower alone because these feelings are super strong and they come out when they're going to come out unless you like reckon with them properly. That's what I think. What do you think, Rebecca? I agree with everything you said, Gabe. And I, I think the really telling line of uh, this writer in his email was, you know, when he directly made the idea that the direct idea that the director did a program because there was a lack of planning with her own daughter and four children from, quote, popular families. Right. That tells me that he is not over and has not overcome the feelings of uh, exclusion and the feelings of insecurity uh, and the things that he suffered as a kid, because that's the conclusion that immediately was jumped to here. And then that was the conclusion that uh, he bitched about to his wife because, you know, he was feeling this way. And those are the words he used because that's where he went immediately. So that's why I agree with you that that perhaps, you know, as much as he's uh, says that he's overcome this, so that he could be a great dad. And it sounds like he is a great dad. And I'm not saying anything other than that. Um, you are not going to be able to stop framing the things the way you frame them until you stop framing things the way that you frame them. And that is internal work. In the meantime, 
you know, your son is eight, and I think eight is old enough to have a similar conversation with him that you are having with us through your email right here. I mean, I think that your son probably would understand if you said, you know, all those things I said about, you know, the church play, that was my stuff. That isn't what actually happened. Like, this director did not exclude you. Um, You know, these kids are not better or more popular or cool than you are. It was just poor planning. And that was my insecurity about stuff that happened to me as a kid that I was when I was a kid that I was framing that through. And I'm really sorry. And I would hate for you to think that any of that was true. I made a mistake in saying all those things. Like I would start there. And then I would, when you have these interactions with your kid and through your kid where you feel like he's being, you know, in some way victimized the way you felt victimized when you were a kid, just like you got to do something to remember this is your lens and that when you find yourself needing, for instance, to talk about it with your wife, just like assume that your child might be, I don't know, eavesdropping and, you know, start the conversation with, hey, I know this is my lens of feeling like these leftover insecure feelings from when I was a kid. But man, that really sucked when that director, you know, picked those other kids and like wasn't organized and planned. I I think that even if you started acknowledging what your lens is, it might change what your delivery then is of that message because you might find yourself actually thinking about that lens as you're talking about it. I think that would be really helpful both in your thinking about this and in your conversations with your family. But I do think that you are still in a place with some pain in it. And I, I do think that that's where you need to start here. Yeah, you know, like I, I this conversation we had at the beginning of the show about um, the way in which, you know, like we, our kids trigger us. You know, one of the things that I even realized just yesterday just yesterday was that some of my irritation with uh my kids seeming inability to operate with executive functioning and sort of executive functioning management uh is triggered by the fact that when i was growing up i experienced a lot of fear insecurity chaos a lot of wild stuff and Managing, like, developing executive management functions was a little bit of a key to survival for me. It was a way to keep chaos and the unknown and the abject at bay for, like, you know, 11-year-old me. And so I would, like, learn stuff and I would, like, organize things and I would think about things and I would, like, just develop theories about stuff. I just, I use my brain as a way to ward off some emotional stuff. Okay, so great. Uh, and so when I see my dear loved one who doesn't seem to be organized using his brain, then my thought is that, well, he's inviting chaos and he's, it's going to, he's going to suffer and he's sort of not utilizing the survival strategy that I had to utilize in order to, and the way I realized I made that connection was in therapy. That's where I made that connection. My therapist pointed out this thing about that. And then I said, oh, that might explain why I get so triggered when my kid is just doing, just being a kid and just being themselves, which, by the way, is fine. That might be why I take it so personally and find it such a life or death matter. And so um, the reason I'm sharing that is because th- there's a couple things in there. Like one is that we are always dealing with whatever information or input arrangements that we get from our experiences in childhood, they continue to run our lives. That's just a fact. They just do. And you don't get free of them, but you can get free of them running your life. And the way to get free of them running your life, in my experience, is by getting some distance on it. And just instead of sort of like going with that voice, like, I got to keep everything in order or else it's we're all going to die, I get to go, oh, that voice is telling me 
one of the things happening in this moment is my voice, my keep everything in order or else we're all going to die voice is tripping out right now. Doesn't mean I have to listen to it. I'm just aware. But that that little moment of pause, that moment of distance from your sort of our pathology and our behavior is key, I think, to not having this stuff run our lives and then consequently run our children's lives. We have such an intimate relationship with our kids. They inherit all of our pathologies. Just not not necessarily cellularly, but just from being around us all the time because we're in their heads. And so it's like Gabe said at the beginning, you really have to deal with your own stuff if you don't want to make your kids deal with it. Like uh, someone once said, we children fight the battles their parents lose. And um, and for me, like I, I recognize that I, I have to deal with, I continue to have to deal with stuff. And so I think that like like Gabe said, this is not, you, I don't have a thing that's going to make this never happen again or make it, you know, fix it this afternoon. I think that what you're revealing in this letter is that you still have a lot of shit to work through. And it's really important for your kid to work through it. And it's mandatory for you to go and work through it in a substantial sort of ground up kind of way because willpower alone isn't going to keep your kid from inheriting the toxic fallout from this horrible experience you had as a child. So that's the one thing. Um, the second thing I was going to say is that I agree with Rebecca that you can talk directly with your kid about what your experience is. Um, and I think the kids will, like, my experience is that kids learn how to separate their own experience from your experience if you acknowledge, you know, actually this is a thing for me because of this. That's like a good stopgap measure. While you're waiting to excavate and fix your whole insides, one really helpful stopgap measure is to pull your kid aside and say, hey, you know, when I do this, it's not because of you or not even because it's really happening. It's because I have my own hangups about this stuff and I'm working on that. Uh, I find that to be a really helpful thing because it frees your kid to have their own experience, which brings me to my third and final point, which is that in general, when you think you might be triggered by something that's going on, instead of telling your kid what's happening, you should ask them how they feel first because he may not even feel anything about it and then you don't have to get into it. But I think it's important in these difficult situations to let kids guide, to let their emotions and feelings guide the conversation. You could say, wow, so you're not in the thing. How does that feel? Not like, oh, my God, I can't fucking believe this. What is that supposed to be? You, oh, my God, so you're not in the thing. Is How does that feel? If a kid's like, yeah, that's cool because then I don't have to be stressed or I wish I was in the thing more, then you can let that guide how you convert, how you sort of have the conversation with them, but you're putting their emotions front and center because – that is the hard part about parenting is we have our own stuff, but our own stuff can't be front and center when we're parenting. The kid's emotional life has to be at the center, and we have to keep working to make that the case. All right. Thanks so much for writing in. Good luck with this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. 
Price and coverage match limited by state law. Time to um, take another question. Again, came to our email address, but you don't have to email us if you want to send us a question. You can give us a call. 424-255-7833 is the phone number that you can call and leave a message on our voicemail. But again, the person whose question we're about to hear did not choose to do that. This person emailed us. And so once again, their question is being read by Shasha Leonel. Dear Mom and Dad are fighting. In a couple of weeks, my husband and I will be hosting our daughter's first birthday party at our home. There are two issues on which I wanted to ask for your advice. First, we decided when our daughter was born that we wouldn't share pictures of her on social media. After some pushback and hurt feelings, our families accepted our decision. I feel a responsibility to remind our guests, approximately 30 people, that they shouldn't post any photos that they take of my daughter at the party. How do you think I should phrase this, and how should I present it to them? My initial thought was to put a sign on the front door saying, Please remember, no photos of Marigold on social media. Is that too strange or abrasive? I don't mind if people post photos from the party of themselves or their own kids on Facebook. Just not mine. Second, my aunt has decided that she will be bringing a plus one to the party. I don't mind so much about an unexpected additional guest, but I have no idea who she plans to bring. She has struggled with depression and self-medication issues and death by suicide of her husband. She often seems detached and emotionally fragile when we see her. A couple years ago, she started casually dating a nice man named Frank, and he has attended many of our family gatherings. I would normally assume she's bringing him to the party, but I have reason to believe that he has been MIA from her life for several months now. And if she's bringing him, wouldn't she just have said, Frank will be coming with me to the party, instead of giving a vague RSVP plus one? I sent her a message asking who she will be bringing, but she hasn't answered me in over a day. I'm not thrilled about the idea of her bringing an unknown person into my house for my daughter's birthday party, but I don't want to alienate her or make her feel unwelcome. Do you think I should press her for more information or just let it go and hope for the best? Thanks. This is one of those questions that people, we get every once in a while, uh, both in the show and in the column, where someone's like, how do I tell people this thing? And I'm like, you tell them. That's how you tell them the thing. You say the thing that you, you want them to know. That's how communication works. I don't mean to be like an asshole about this, but I, but this person is tr- they 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 have their requests, and their requests are you know specific, not unreasonable. I mean, I don't know that everyone is would agree that they would say, okay, no, never post a picture of my kid on social media ever. But I think it's perfectly fine if someone, that that's their point of view, that's fine. It's your house. You get to make that call. That's You're not harming anyone with that. It's not damaging. And the same thing with wanting to know who this plus one is that's going to come to your house. That's fine to want to know that. I think that's appropriate. I think that's like, you know. And so you just say no pictures of the kid on social media. And, and you do it in a way that people won't forget. So you put it on a sign. I don't know. You make little placards. I don't know what you do. But you just say it in a way just like as if you were to say take your shoes off when you come in the house or a reminder not to flush anything but toilet paper down the thing. You just put it in the place where people see it so that they remember the fact. You don't have to feel bad about this being something that you want to do because you're allowed to say that. You're allowed to say don't put pictures of my kid in social media. That's perfectly appropriate. Same thing with Frank or the unknown plus one. That's even more, to me, that's even less of an outlying thing. It's like if this your aunt is going to bring some person to your kid's birthday party, you should know who's coming to your kid's birthday party. That's not unreasonable to ask. And so if your aunt is, you can say I'm not comfortable with you bringing an unknown person. 
And if your aunt's offended by that, then that's her problem. I'm sorry. Like, if if you don't get that you can't just bring strange men to, like, your kids, to, like, your grandniece's birthday party or whatever it is, second niece, great niece, uh, birthday party, then I don't know, then, then that's just you. That's your problem. So I think this lady just needs to say what she needs to say, to whom she needs to say it, and keep it moving. And if they have problems with that, that's on them. That's what I think. What do you guys think? I think this is the classic trap of overthinking everything, which I don't mm. want to say is like the writer inner's personality generally, but I do think <laughs> <laughs> I do wow. think that sometimes I'm glad you don't um, want to say that. No, well, I'm, let me finish my sentence. <laughs> I don't want to say this thing that I'm. I I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that this is the writer inner's first baby. Because I think there is a, a an overthinking trap uh-huh. that is also set for you when you have your first kid. Because uh-huh. we've talked about a million mm-hmm. times on this show, you think everything has to be a certain way or everything will be ruined. Mm-hmm. And that is just not mm-hmm. true. Uh, but it does mm-hmm. sometimes get you into this trap of like overthinking everything. Um, I actually think that the social media thing, you know, it's not something that I would ever think about or worry about. But like if you worry about it, think about it. It's not an uncommon thing. I think it's becoming more common for Mm -hmm. people to think that their Mm -hmm. kid has separate rights to privacy than they do and that they don't want their kid being on social media. That's fine. And I think posting a sign is fine. Mm -hmm. I would even post more than one. Mm -hmm. Also put one in the bathroom mirror. I think that's a super good idea. Um, As far as the ant thing, um, what really strikes me here is all of the details that the writer in her felt the need to include <laughs> above and beyond just, <laughs> is it okay for me to think that someone shouldn't bring someone I don't know to my you know baby's birthday party? That's a judgment call. I mean, if you, generally speaking, like and trust your relatives and you, generally speaking, uh, don't you know, fear that kind of, you know, intrusion into your home by a stranger causing harm, then, you know, that's fine. But if you are a little bit more cautious about kind of that, who walks across the threshold, who's around your kids, I mean, and if your relatives have not had a pattern of displaying behavior that you felt like you could completely stand behind and be trusting of, then that, again, is is your line to draw. But the detail here that really strikes me is that this writer in her says, I sent her a message and she hasn't responded in a day. What do I do next? Mm-hmm. And the next thing you did was write to three strangers who do a podcast and ask them, <laughs> um, A, a day is not a long time to not get a message back. It just isn't uh, in 2019. I mean, you might be the kind of person who responds to things immediately and promptly. I am not. So I would give her a little bit of time. Maybe you said the party's a couple weeks away. Maybe wait through the weekend and then reach out again. Say, hey, I don't know if you saw my earlier message. And second, um, If you feel comfortable enough with this relative to invite them to your uh, intimate personal celebrations and family events, at some point, I would hope that she would stop being seen as the tragic self-medicating survivor of a husband who died by suicide and maybe start looking through the lens of her as you know, a whole person, a person who's part of your family, because I do get just a little bit of a rub of... Uh, lens looking here that just makes me uncomfortable given the pressure you've put on her that she has to respond within a 24-hour period. So to me, that either says you don't trust her and you do need more information Mm. or it says, you know, maybe you're just pushing a little too hard and you need to just give this lady a little bit more time to communicate back with you. Those are my takeaways from the email, but I do think this does smack of an overthinking trap. And, you know, that's something that you might want to think about in your communications with your friends and family going forward through your parenting journey. 
Yeah, the one thing I have to add, you know, you guys have, have, have basically answered this, I think. The one thing I have to add is it's completely your right to to want to keep pictures of your one-year-old off of social media. That is, in, in some ways, that seems to me to be the correct position to take. That seems like appropriate and right to me. There will be pictures of your one-year-old on social media. I promise you, it's just going to happen. Yep. You're having a birthday party. You said you were having like 30 relatives over. Then there's going to be like whatever other events they go to. Somebody's going to take pictures of the kids. A cute kid. Somebody's going to take picture of them, a picture of them and then, and then put them up on Facebook or put them up on Instagram or put them up on Snapchat or put them up on music.ly or put them up on whatever is happening now. <laughs> and, and that may be terrible. You know, there's all sorts of terrible things that can happen as a result of that. Probably none of the terrible things will happen, but then subsequently lots of terrible things will happen as a result of your kid being involved in social media. This is the terrible world that your child is growing up into, and I wish that weren't the case, but sadly it is. And, like, you could make your peace with it now a little bit. You can still tell your relatives, oh, by the way, we're trying not to put pictures of uh, Marigold was the name in the question. Although I want to specify for listeners that when this question came to us by email, Marigold was, was within square brackets to suggest that the, 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 the letter writer's child is not actually named Marigold, which I feel like would increase my sympathy if I were a listener and I found out that the name was not really Marigold. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Point of order, though, I, it, when I when we were reading it back just now, I wondered if the brackets meant that it actually is the real name, and we and shouldn't that we're not say it. To use it. Oh, Ooh. I just had a I had a panic. Like, did no, we just I, I, this whole thing up? Can't be. Can't, I mean, because why be. would you? I mean, can't be. What, oh, a, it can be. A marigold, not a name. B, <laughs> no, <laughs> not oh not, not possible. We're get so many angry emails from like anyone. All right, we're putting all our chips on the on the probability that the kid's name is not really marigold. Um, all but right. but you you're you're welcome to say like we're trying to keep pictures of of Delilah off of social media. <laughs> now I made up a name to cover for the fake name marigold. Uh, we're we're trying to keep pictures of marigold off of social media. Um, and please don't post any pictures. And some of your relatives will think, oh, she's being a bit pushy and self-indulgent. And some of your relatives will think, oh, fair enough. That's a reasonable request. Doesn't matter. You can't control what they think. And then some of your relatives will just completely ignore you and put pictures up on social media. And um, you can be mad about that or you can be fine about it or you can you can hear me saying this and, and get mad about it in anticipation or you can get mad at it when the event itself actually happens. But it's going to happen. And unfortunately, this is one of the many, many things things within parenting that you will find is just not something that you get to decide, not because it's not your right, morally speaking, to make that decision, but because the world has not given you that power. It's not in your gift, as the British say, mm. uh, to control that. Mm -hmm. um, so I, mostly I, I, I wish you luck in, in dealing with the realization that pictures of Marigold are going to appear on social media, whether you like that or not. <laughs> Okay, it's time now for the part of the show that we like to call all kinds of different things, but is actually called recommendations. Uh, some people email us or contact us on Facebook and they say, but Gabe, Carvel, Rebecca, how can I find this thing that you recommended or endorsed or, or spoke about in a favorable way on an episode about seven or eight months ago? I think it was a book. It was probably for young adult readers. It had some kind of fantasy theme, but I don't remember anything else about it. Can you please tell me where I can find this information? And we say you can get it at slate.com slash 
endorsements. It's the Slate Podcast Endorsomatic. It has everything that has ever been recommended on Mom and Dad Are Fighting or on the Culture Gabfest or on the Political Gabfest or on Hang Up and List. So many shows, so many endorsements, so many recommendations, and they're all collected in this fantastic searchable database, the Slate Podcast Endorsomatic. Check it out. It used to be only for Slate Plus members, but now it's available to everybody. It's so cool. Check it out. Slate.com slash endorsements. Okay. Uh, who is going to go first? Who will uh, endorse something that will later end up uh, appearing in the Slate podcast? Endorsomatic. I will. I'm going to recommend a movie. And the movie that I'm going to recommend is called Enchanted. It came out in 2007 from Walt Disney Studios. It's a live action movie about a Disney princess who leaves the world of Disney princesses and comes into the real world where she meets a dude in New York City and they have a sort of romance. It's a fun movie if you're an eight-year-old girl. I can tell you that from direct observation. But if you're a grown man, (laughs) the princess is played by Amy Adams, one of our Mm. very finest Mm. actors. And her performance, Mm. as with everything Amy Adams has ever done, basically, is so deep and thoughtful. She's really, I think, considered what it would be like to be an actual Disney princess living in actual Manhattan and encountering encountering actual humanity for the first time. It's really a terrific performance. And if you find yourself watching it with your children, you will find that your children are very entertained by the conceit and the misadventures, and you will get to savor this wonderful performance by Amy Adams, uh, one of her first, I think, in a major motion picture. So that's my recommendation, Enchanted. That, uh, that that description of that performance reminds me about how I feel about Will Ferrell's performance in Elf. Same thing. Which, in Elf. Yeah, yeah a lot a lot of absolutely. people think that's just like over the top, hand fisted Will Ferrell, but that performance has layers, guys. It's so so good. And Someone should just... do a crossover with Will Ferrell and Amy <laughs> Adams, and it would win all the Oscars. It would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I really think she's great in The Master, but just under she's The Master great. by Paul Thomas yeah. Anderson, I would put her performance in Enchanted. Uh, Rebecca, what are you going to recommend? Uh, I'm going to recommend a uh, a Netflix show that is a spinoff of, uh, if you guys are news consumers, you might know that Vox, one of the things that they do a lot of is those little explainer videos on their website, news explainer videos, topical explainer videos, data, journalism explainer videos. There's actually a series on Netflix called Vox Explained, um, which, you know, you know who it's for? I'm not saying it's for me. It is for the teenager who wants to be a freaking know-it-all at dinner and just like know oh a lot God. about a lot of things. I have so one of those. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a whole episode. Um, th- some of them are, are deeper. There's episodes about the gender pay gap, and there's en- episodes about oh, uh, the race yes. wealth gap. We need that. Uh, there's <laughs> there's an episode about extraterrestrial <laughs> oh, life. Extraterrestrial life. There's an episode about esports, the stock market, why diets fail, K-pop. So it's just kind of one of these um, shows that's very. It's only 20 minutes long and like really crisply produced and perfect for the teenager who likes to be a know-it-all dinner. So that's my recommendation, Vox Explained. It's a series on Netflix, and I believe a second season of it is coming out soon. That is great. It's so great to know that, Rebecca, you and I have the exact same child. That we actually share <laughs> We have the same kids. I think we have this we two. We have the same kids. It's, it's kids. phenomenal. It's as if <laughs> all adolescents <laughs> are, in fact, the same in a way. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> that is right up the kid's alley. He definitely needs that. Okay. Uh, well, I, I hate to go all media, like all TV, all screen time in these Do recommendations. It. But I, I came in here planning to recommend a, a, a lighthearted comedy for kids maybe 13 and up, and that's Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which I don't think 
think has ever been recommended on the show. And I actually, I, I, I got into a, I stirred a little trouble this morning with my kids by suggesting that the show, while good, is overrated and that people mm. are too hyped off Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And both my kids were like, Dad. This is like what? What the fuck are you? You know what I mean? And uh, but but my kids love this show. They think it's really funny, and uh, it's the, uh, the thing. The thing I do like about it. I mean, I was just kind of fucking with them. But the thing I do like about it is that. It does all of this stuff of um, basic sort of like comedy. It's like goofy jokes and people getting hit in the nuts and just whatever goofy stuff with comedy. But it doesn't rely on all of its jokes being around stupid gender, race, class like homophobic stuff the way a lot of straight comedies do it just it manages to do all the basic comedy without relying on these old tired tropes and i like that about it and uh you know the more you watch it the more interesting the characters are and the way they interact you know it's just it's a goofy show and uh it's charming and it's funny and i think it's really good like lighthearted sort of every the whole family can laugh along with again with kids above 13 or so because there is some sexual type adult type jokes and content in there but it's all to the good so i'm recommending brooklyn 99 for family viewing the comedies that you watch when you're like 13 through 17 are the funniest comedies of all history you know mm. what i mean <laughs> like, like whatever yeah. it is that's your first introduction to like the patterns of like a joke or a sitcom plot or like whenever you're first getting that stuff and it hits your brain fresh as opposed to like as another version of a formula it just i remember oh, the crappy point. shows i was watching at that age and how fucking funny they, they were i was, i grew up in england like what i grew up in england there there, there was a sitcom called allo allo which was set in the french mm. resistance in in the second world war <laughs> It's not a good show. Like, it really isn't. But, oh, my God, I thought it was the funniest fucking thing I'd ever seen. There was another one. There was a sitcom called Duty Free about four English tourists who were on a sort of package holiday in France. And some of them were upper class and some of them were, were less upper class. And so there was a kind of clash oh, of cultures class there. Comedy. Was, yeah. And, oh, my God. Like, I still, I still cherish this, although I will never watch it again because it was obviously terrible. <laughs> Um, but I can see how Brooklyn Nine-Nine would like totally hit that spot for somebody who it was... Really, it seems to hit the spot for both the kids. Yeah. And that's our show. Slate Plus members, stick around if you want to hear the new developments from Rebecca's Summer Camp. If you've got a question that you would like us to tackle, you can call us 424-255-7833. Email us, momanddad at slate.com. Join the Facebook group. We've got a great Facebook group. Here's what you do. You go to Facebook, you search for Slate Parenting, you find the Slate Parenting Facebook group, and then you mash that join button, and then you wait for us to approve you, and then boom, you're in the Facebook group. Our show is produced by Jess Jupiter. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoy, I'm Gabriel Roth. We will see you next week. If you were a Slate Plus member, this is what you would be hearing now. There's some new developments. Maybe you remember, uh, I think it was last summer, Rebecca had a, a story about some extremely problematic practices at her kids' summer camp. Rebecca, why don't you remind listeners who may not have listened to that episode in, in three or four weeks uh, to uh, just fill them in on what happened and then update us on the latest developments. But you're not a Slate Plus member, so you're not hearing that now. If you want to become a Slate Plus member and thus be hearing it now, go to slate.com slash mom and dad plus. <laughs>